0: Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew 22. That's where we are this morning, Matthew
1: 22. If you didn't come to church this morning with a Bible, there's a black Bible somewhere on a row in the seat in front of you. Uh, Grab that black Bible out. Turn it to page
0: 828, Gospel of Matthew Chapter 22. This morning, we continue right on in our study of Matthew's Gospel. Uh, if you're new to the Bible, uh,
1: Matthew, the one who wrote this gospel, was one of Jesus's twelve closest followers. He had a front row seat to all of Jesus to all of Jesus's ministry and of course to his death. He was an eyewitness to his resurrection from the grave about thirty years after Jesus's ascension, Matthew wrote his memoirs about what he had seen and experienced during his time with with Christ what Matthew set out to show in his gospel uh, is that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's King he's the Messiah promised by God who had come to rescue his people from sin and judgment and yet shockingly and we're gonna find out here even next fall as we get into Matthew, the end of the the gospel that Jesus the way he takes up his throne is not my power and domineering the way of the leaders on earth, but by way of his own sacrifice and death. The king lays down his life for his people and then is vindicated in the end by his resurrection. Jesus isn't merely crowned king of Israel by the time Matthew's gospel concludes, but king of heaven and earth. He is the Lord of all. This opposition to Jesus that culminates in His death on the cross outside Jerusalem has now kicked into high gear at this point in the gospel. Much of Jesus' final days are just filled with conflict with the Jewish religious leaders who hated Him. Our text today is on Tuesday of Holy Week. Uh, For the better part of that day, the religious leaders had sought to trap Jesus with their clever, no-win questions to humiliate him before the people. Last week, we looked at the Sadducees' failed attempt to embarrass Jesus about the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. Of course, that exchange came right on the heels of the Pharisees and the Herodians' failure to pin Jesus down about loyalty to Caesar. Friends, at this point, it just seems like the these religious leaders are just grasping at straws as they try to find any argument that will stick against Jesus. Oh, let's let's try to entrap him with a political question. Nope, he won that round. Well, well then let's let's embarrass him with a, a theological question. Nope, he won that round too. Okay, well then let's let's get him with a moral question, with an ethical quandary. Maybe that will finally take Jesus down. We turn our attention to this moral question in our text today. Let's read together
0: Matthew. Twenty-two. I start in verse thirty-four. I'm going to read down to verse forty. But
1: when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul. And with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments
0: depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, each
1: Sunday I, I give you the main point of, of the passage to help you understand the Scripture better and to help me preach it better, to help me preach the agenda of the, of the text rather than my own agenda. It strikes me today that this big idea from Matthew twenty two thirty four 34 to 40 mirrors the main takeaway from the entire Scripture. Jesus even said in verse 40, on these two commandments, loving God, loving neighbor, depend, hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus says the Bible's instruction to love God and neighbor summarizes our basic responsibility before God. Friends, if you want to know what God is calling you to as a follower of Jesus, you can boil it down to these two dominant priorities. Jesus says that the entire Old Testament depends. It's really the word hangs. It it hangs like a door on its hinges upon these twin commands. It's like the Bible rests all of its ethical weight on these two massive love responsibilities. And of course, since... Jesus is the great fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. It's no surprise that the New Testament instruction is aimed in the same way. It's aimed at love for God and love for others as well. What Jesus is saying is nothing in the entire Bible, listen, nothing in the entire Bible can be truly obeyed unless you are marked by these two things, love for God and love for others. Here's the main idea. Of the text that I pray will be the main idea of the sermon this morning. What matters most to Jesus is that you love God totally and love others selflessly. They asked Jesus, what's the first and great commandment? And Jesus says, here's what matters most to me. It's that you love God totally. You love others selflessly. Friends, again, this morning I've simply broken apart that main idea into our outline this morning, point one in verses 37 and 38, love God totally, point two from verse 39, love God, love others selflessly. Uh, I looked for a better adverb than selflessly. I couldn't think of one. What does it mean to love others as you love yourself? Selflessly is the best I could do. I even asked chat GPT this morning. Guess what it said? It said, Love others selflessly. I said, okay, even the cyborg agreed with me. We're good. Love God totally. Love others selflessly. Brothers and sisters, I think there's a a danger lurking in this sermon this morning. If you've been a a Christian for any amount of time, you you probably know these verses really well. Even if you're new to Christianity, the, the passage is so straightforward. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Okay, let's pray. Let's go home. No, seriously, don't tune the word out this morning because it's familiar or because it's simple. Because as simple as it is, these words are profoundly challenging to obey, aren't they? I pray the Lord would do his work in us and among us this morning. Look at verse 34 again. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, to test him. So Jesus had sent the theological liberals, the Sadducees, home packing. And so now the theologically conservative Pharisees hop back into the arena. And verse 35 indicates that it was one specific Pharisee that stepped forward to challenge Jesus. Matthew calls him a lawyer. Now, when you hear this word lawyer, uh, don't get the wrong idea. He's not talking about a lawyer in a judicial court, but rather an expert in the Old Testament law. The law of Moses. This man that's interrogating Jesus is doing so from a position of authority and expertise in the scripture. But clearly his aim is sinister. I mean, Matthew tells us in verse 35 that the lawyer's aim was to test Jesus. He didn't approach Jesus to learn from him, but to expose him, to prove that this, this backwater rabbi from Nazareth was a fraud, was an imposter. He asked Jesus, according to verse 36, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Of course, by great, the lawyer is asking Jesus, which Old Testament command is the greatest? Like, what's What's the Michael Jordan of the greatest commands, of the Old Testament commands? What's the Rembrandt rule that I'm supposed to follow? He wants to know the commandment that has the central, dominating importance for our lives. Friends, what the lawyer was trying to do was to get Jesus to weigh in on a popular debate of that time. By the rabbi's calculation, the law of Moses contains 613 different commands. I bet you'd have a hard time keeping up with all those, wouldn't you? 613. It wasn't unusual for the rabbis and the religious leaders of Israel to try to assess the relative importance of those 613. The rabbis often spoke of, of commandments that were heavy, the ones that really mattered the most, and the ones that were light or less consequential. You can understand why there was a, this was a live question in Israel. If you could just identify which of the 613 was the top dog, well, then maybe you could... Prioritize the rest. The reason this lawyer tested Jesus with this question is that he knew that whatever answer Jesus gave, he would run the risk of ticking off those who had come to a different conclusion. Whatever Jesus said, you can just imagine somebody's going to shout him down, right? Yeah, but, but what about circumcision, Jesus? Right? It's the outward sign of the covenant that God gave Father Abraham. Circumcision's the greatest command. Or I can't believe that you didn't say keeping the Sabbath holy, Jesus. After all, the Sabbath is the sign of God's covenant with Israel through Moses. Sabbath laws have got to be paramount. Get the picture. You understand why this question is dicey? Since there wasn't a prevailing answer about the greatest command among the religious elite, then surely any answer that Jesus gave would cause him to lose face and influence among some of the people. They tested him. And yet, once again, Jesus demonstrates a far superior wisdom and infinitely deeper knowledge of the scripture than these men possess. It's almost like he wrote the thing. Instead of listing a single rule over another rule or one outward behavior over another one, Jesus remains above the fray by heading straight to the center of the human heart. He aims at what we love. Jesus said to him, Verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God
0: with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And of course, that brings us to the first point in the outline this morning, love God totally. Jesus could not have chosen a more familiar text in the Old Testament to answer the
1: Pharisees Than this one, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5, which is part of Israel's Shema. Shema being the Hebrew word that means "hear." Moses said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. Friends, this text is like the Israelite Pledge of Allegiance, okay? Faithful Jews recited it every morning, every evening. Even today, it's still a a staple in Jewish synagogue worship. Uh, Jerry Weissman told me this week that he's never been to a Jewish service in his entire life where the Shema was not recited. Okay, you can find Jerry at the back. You hear it this morning, Jerry? Okay, find him at the back. He'll give it to you in Hebrew. It's really impressive. The love demanded in the Shema isn't mushy sentimentalism. Jesus is after a person's complete undivided devotion to God. It's a love that has no rival, no competitor. This love is expressed in action, in actions of faithfulness and service and obedience to God and to His Word. In fact, if you were to look at the context of Deuteronomy 6, Moses goes on to show us the way that God expects to be loved. It's not through an emotional high or even through loving feelings, all those are good, but through a deep commitment to obey God's word. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, Moses said. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Friends, this is a love that has a proof. And just like a spouse proves his or her love for the other by concrete actions of service and loyalty, so love for God is evidenced by a heart full of faithful obedience to the word of God. Jesus says that what matters most to God is that you love him with every nook and cranny of your life. You shall love the Lord your
0: God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The word that jumps off the page is that pesky word, all, isn't it? It's the drumbeat of the verse. All. 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 God wants all of you. He's calling you to give Him your total, unqualified devotion.
1: God doesn't merely expect that you love Him in your public life in front of others, but
0: also in your private life in front of no one but him. He wants love not just in your actions, but in your words and in
1: your thought life and your motivations as well. Not just in your quote-unquote religious life on Sunday, but in your work life, in your family life, in your hobbies, in your entertainment choices, Monday to Saturday. Well, beloved, this is a love that holds nothing back. It's utter and total devotion to God. Jesus is saying the greatest commandment is that you must love God with every single fiber of your being. Now, you might look at this verse and think that Jesus is kind of chopping up the human person into three different parts, the, the heart, the soul, and the mind. But that's not what's going on here. Friends, anytime the Bible speaks of our anthropology, uh who we are as human beings created in God's image it consistently speaks of us in two parts body and spirit uh, material and immaterial physical and spiritual exterior interior what Jesus is doing here though is reminding us that our our spiritual life the interior core of who we are is to be totally and exclusively pointed toward God and here's the thing if you love God on the inside with your heart, soul, and mind. Well, then you'll love God on the outside with your body as well. These descriptors that Jesus uses, heart, soul, and mind, they overlap in meaning quite a bit, but I do think understanding them separately is helpful. The heart in scripture and speaks of a center of a person. It's the operating control system of your life. It controls the heart does what you desire, what you value. Your your heart is closely associated with your will. It, it fuels your decisions and your plans. So, so if I say to my wife, Lindsay, I love you with all my heart, I, I don't just mean that I, I get a tingly emotional sensation when I see you. I mean I love her with all that I am. My will is committed to her entirely. Friends, this is what this verse is getting at. God is calling us to love him at the core of our very person which then fuels every decision that we make in this life. To love God with your soul is to love him with your deepest desires and longings. It's a love that animates your entire being. It's like the the blood that that pulses through the veins of your spiritual life. I think our opening hymn is aimed at this very thing, this all of your soul love, saying,
0: oh, come all you faithful. Oh, come, let us Adore Him, Christ the Lord. Adore Him. Not just sing to Him. Not just say nice things about Him. Adore Him. Beloved God is calling us to cherish Him, to treasure Him, to prize Him, to love Him. Can you honestly say that this is your
1: heart's desire and pattern? Is your heart satisfied in all that God is for you through Christ? Do you find your all in him or is your greatest passion and energies devoted elsewhere? Finally, Jesus says that what matters to God above all is that we love him with our minds. It's interesting that the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 doesn't include the mind in the list of love. It says that we ought to love God with our might, our strength, our resources. But here, strength drops off and Jesus
0: adds the mind instead. Friends, what does it look like to worship God with your mind? Well, at the baseline level, it means that God is honored when we think.
1: Say again, God is honored when you think. That's good news, isn't it? You don't have to somehow check your mind at the door when you approach Christianity. Even as we exercise faith in the Lord Jesus, the, the scriptures never compromise good logic. And God's word is always deeply rooted in the facts of history. Kids, one way that you love God with your mind is when you work hard at school and devote yourself to your studies. Do you know that? God gave you your mind. Now love him by using it well for his glory. Even your academics Ought to be an expression of your worship to the Lord. Friends, loving God with your mind means that you think well in relation to Him. (laughs) It means that you're not satisfied with inaccurate thoughts about who God is and what He's done. You want to think carefully, even precisely, about the Lord. You want to know God rightly so that you can love Him truly. Friends, you know that this type of love works this way, in our human relationships. What would you think if if I came up to you and said, let me tell you about my wife, Lindsay.
0: She's amazing. She's a Yankee from the North. She has platinum blonde hair. She hates football. What would you think? Did I honor Lindsay
1: with how I described her? I mean, other than, than the amazing part, nothing what I said about her is true. Nothing what I said about my southern brunette football-loving wife was accurate. It doesn't matter how intense my feelings may be toward her. When I don't accurately know her, when I don't accurately describe she, who she is, I've not honored her. I've not loved her. Friends, if we know this dynamic to be true in human relationships, then why would we ever be satisfied with a subpar knowledge of the Lord? the one who created us and redeemed us through the
0: blood of his son. Let me ask you, do you consider yourself a theologian? Do you consider yourself a theologian? I'm not asking this question of just the
1: seminary guys in the room. I'm asking every single Christian here this morning, do you consider yourself a theologian? I'm not asking if you're formally trained or if you have certain educational credentials. None of those things are required by the Lord. What I'm asking you is if you consider the study of theology, the study of who God is and his word, one of the
0: chief ways that you can love him. Listen to Psalm 111.2. Psalm 111.2. Great are the works of the Lord. Does anybody know the next word? Studied by all who delight in them. Great are the works of the Lord
1: studied (laughs) by all who delight in them. Not just praised, right? Not just looked at, studied with our minds. In other words, friends, we only delight in the works of our God with our hearts to the degree that we study those works with our minds. Do you consider our God and his word worthy of being studied with every ounce of your mind's capacity?
0: Or does even my mentioning this topic of theology make you yawn a bit? Friends, each one of us is a theologian.
1: We all think about God in some way. We may think poorly about him and inaccurately of him and thus be a very poor theologian, or we may commit ourselves to think so accurately of him and descriptively of him that we love him with every faculty of of our being in our mind. None of us is off the hook. We're all theologians. The question is, what type of theologian are you? some of you may be thinking, well, John, that sounds like the type of kind of stuffy, ivory tower Christianity that I just want nothing to do with. I understand where you're coming from. We're not after a highbrow intellectual discipleship to Jesus that never translates into the stuff of real life. That's not what we're after. What we're after is a robust God-honoring theology that then fuels God-honoring doxology. Again, think about my illustration with Lindsay. I love her best when I know her best. When I know who she is, my heart responds with praise and love and affection. Beloved, If this is how the Christian life works. When the light of God's Word is, is studied and known and meditated upon, it produces the heat of affections for Him in the furnace of our souls. Light and heat. Heat and light. Beloved, this is the church that we want to be by God's grace, the type of ministry we want to have here at RGC. We want to be a people that think about and study and know the truth. We we fill our services to the brim as best we can with the Scripture. We, We sing songs that are full of good theology. We preach sermons that are very theological. But none of that good theology is an end of itself
0: deeper knowledge is meant to lead us into fuller worship and more faithful lives. I think it was the 20th century Welsh
1: pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who once said, I spend half my time telling
0: Christians in my church, study doctrine. And the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. So true.
1: There needs to be an open pipeline between the head and the heart. Doctrine is for devotion, friends. Theology is for doxology. Truth is for love.
0: How are you doing in loving God with all your mind? Friends, can you imagine how your life and the life of our church might be different a year from now
1: if every single one of us devoted ourselves to the deep study of God through his word? What would it look like if brothers and sisters just got together regularly to read the Bible together, to discuss good theological books together. I I know that goes on already here in Redeeming Grace Church. I'm so grateful for it. But what if it became an abnormal thing in our church for a person not to be engaged in that type of intentional study of the Bible with others? I think it would revolutionize lives.
0: I think it would revolutionize this church. Now, I'm guessing that some of you read Jesus' words in verse 37, and to you they
1: sound a a little harsh. They sound a tad exacting and maybe even a bit presumptuous on God's part. Like, who does he think he is to demand that
0: I love him with my all? Well, the reason is right there in verse 37. Jesus doesn't merely tell us how we're to
1: love God with heart, soul, and mind. He tells us why. The words of the Shema don't just say, love the Lord God with all you are. It
0: says, love the Lord your God with all that you are. Friends, how else does the Lord become your God but by Him making you part of His people? God has creator's rights over every single one of us.
1: And for those who have been rescued from the penalty of our rebellion against him, he has Redeemer's rights over us too. Friends, this is the theological logic of grace that courses through the pages of the Bible. Our love for God is the consequence of his unfailing love for us. We love him only, why? Because he first loved us. Friends, this afternoon is a way to edify your soul and just renew your heart in the Lord. I would encourage you to spend some time reading in Deuteronomy in the lead up to the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 32 and following, we find this amazing description of God's faithful, unwavering love for his people. Moses says things like this. Has any people heard the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and lived? Has any other God rescued his people from another nation by signs and wonders and an outstretched arm and a mighty hand
0: like the Lord your God did for you? In other words, hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. He's the only God, and yet he's your God. The reason that
1: God demanded such unwavering devotion from his people was his own unwavering covenant commitment. To them, Friends, of course, this logic of grace, it does not stop when you get to the New Testament. It intensifies in the New Testament. Now that Christ has come, we recognize that this loyal, forever love of God for his people is demonstrated most fully through the person and work of his son who died in the place of sinners like us to bring us to God. Listen, friends, don't get the wrong idea please don't get the wrong idea about this sermon, about this text. If you're a Christian, if you've repented of your sin, and you put your trust in Christ to save you from the penalty of your sin, committing yourself to love God is not,
0: is not to get his attention or curry his favor or to barter for his love.
1: That would mean, if, if that were the case, that that's why we love God is to just get it. His, him to love us, that would mean God's love for you would ebb and flow with
0: your love for him. How horrifying would that be? Praise God, our love for him is merely the fitting
1: response to the fact that his eternal love, his gaze of affection and grace is already eternally fixed on us
0: because we are his through Christ. Friends, are you you here at church this morning with a cold heart? Is your heart distant from the Lord? Jesus isn't calling you to to warm it up with your own self-made kindling. He's beckoning you to stand by the fire of his own love for you in Christ. Friends, meditate on what you deserve because of your sin and rebellion against God and then let your heart erupt with the knowledge that you will face none of it. None of the hell your sin has earned because of the matchless love of God. Christ Jesus stood in our place. The reason God demands your all is that he deserves your all. But the good news of the gospel is that you can
1: trust him with your all. He'll never betray you. He'll never let you down when you give your whole self to him. He'll never act to harm you or abuse his rights over you. In fact, when you love God with all that
0: you are and all that you'll have, you'll find him, friends, to be your your satisfaction and your delight and your joy. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.14, where the love of Christ
1: controls us because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. We love because
0: he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, love God totally. Number two, love others selflessly.
1: After stating the greatest and foremost command, Jesus continues in verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And here's the twist in the story. The Pharisees asked Jesus for the, for the great commandment, singular, and then Jesus gives a plural
0: answer. Why? Why do you think Jesus added another commandment? I think what Jesus wants us to see is
1: that love for God, friends, is superglued theologically to love for others,
0: right? It belongs together like peanut butter and jelly. Just don't know the one without the other unless you're weird, right? You can't love God truly, Jesus says, unless it results in
1: a demonstrable love for neighbor. And you can't truly love your neighbor unless you love God with your all. In verse 39, Jesus quotes Leviticus 19.18. We read the passage earlier in the service. I don't know if you noticed, but Leviticus 19 is really just an extended application of what it looks like to obey the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20. In fact, in his response to the Pharisees in Matthew, Jesus picks two different Old Testament verses that summarize the first and second tables of the Ten Commandments. The Shema in in Deuteronomy 6.5 summarizes the first table of the law, the first four commandments, which are vertically oriented toward our relationship with God. So, So love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and might. Well, that is an echo, isn't it, of the first command of the 10. You shall have no other God before me. Leviticus 19.18, on the other hand, summarizes the second table of the law, the, the last six commands of the Decalogue that are aimed at human relationships. Honor your father and mother. Shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, covet. In fact, if you just pull out your worship guide for a second and look at that Exodus, or excuse me, the Leviticus passage, chapter 19, you'll see that, that verses 9 to 18 again, are just an extended application of the second table of the law. What does it look like to love your neighbor as yourself? Just let your eyes scan over the text, verse 9 and following. It looks like caring for the poor and the downtrodden with your resources. It looks like not taking from others what's not yours. It looks like telling the truth to those in your life.
0: It looks like grace and mercy toward the needy since you honor and fear the Lord. It looks like impartiality in court and advocating for justice. It looks like the absence of hate or violence or vengeance.
1: See, friends, Jesus is not giving separate commands with this titanium firewall between them. No, he's saying the first commandment is the basis for the second commandment. You love neighbor best when you love God most. And the second commandment is the visible expression of the first commandment. The proof you love God totally,
0: the proof in the pudding is that you love others selflessly. Friends, this shouldn't surprise us theologically.
1: If loving God is the, the foremost duty and privilege that we have as human beings, then why wouldn't the duty of loving those made in God's very image stand right
0: next to it? We love God, so we love the reflection of God, men and women and boys
1: and girls. No matter their age or sex or ethnicity or skin color or status or health or even the relationship with God, God calls us to love them all as unto him. Of course, in the Scripture, neighbor, uh, neighbor isn't just the guy who lives next door. It's anyone whom God puts in your path. It's your boss
0: or coworker. It's your restaurant waitress. It's the customer service rep whose broken English you can't understand over the phone. It's your neighbor. It's the guy who cuts you off in traffic. It's your transgender classmate. It's your spouse. It's your children. It's your actual neighbor. Your neighbor. Jesus says, Love them as you love yourself. Notice what he he doesn't say. He doesn't command us, Love
1: yourself. He assumes that we'll do that without any coaching at all, right? Jesus starts with something that is inborn within us. We all have a a natural God given instinct towards self preservation and self fulfillment, right? You want food and water to keep yourself alive, no questions asked. You want adequate clothes and shelter. No questions asked. You want to protect yourself from harm or sadness. You want satisfaction in your life. You want to enjoy life with
0: friends and loved ones. Again, Jesus doesn't command us to love ourselves. He assumes it. But neither
1: does He say, instead of loving yourself, love others. Of course, we all know that the human tendency in our sin is toward pride and selfishness. There is a a type of self-love that is sinful, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. Friends, none of the things I just ticked off a second ago are sinful. In fact, God has hardwired us to want to live (laughs) and to want to thrive and to want to be safe and happy. Jesus assumes that we will all work to take care of ourselves. That's what normal, healthy humans do.
0: Jesus doesn't command self-love, nor does he replace it. Rather, he says, love others as you love yourself. The big
1: word there is as. It's very similar to the golden rule in Matthew 7. As you wish
0: others would do to you, so you do to them. I love how Pastor John Piper said it. Make self-seeking the measure of your self-giving. If you're energetic
1: in pursuing your own happiness, be energetic in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. If you are creative in pursuing your own happiness, be creative in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. If you are persevering in pursuing your own happiness, be persevering in pursuing the happiness of your neighbor. So John, well, what does this look like? What does it look like to love my neighbor as
0: myself? Well, how about things like this, friends? Do you seek friends for yourself? Be a friend to others. Do you want food when you're hungry? Don't hesitate to feed your neighbor. Do you want good grades in school? Help your classmates get good grades too. Do you desire grace and mercy when you mess up? Extend that same grace to others when they mess up. You want a hug at the end of a long day? Show tenderness to others in your life too. Do you want to help others? Or excuse me, do you want others
1: to help you grow spiritually? Well, commit yourself to helping others grow spiritually
0: too. Do you want those in your life to weep with you when you're grieving and rejoice with you when you're happy? Do the same to others throughout their life circumstances. There are endless applications here, aren't there? I think it would be easy to hear Jesus's words through the lens of our culture rather than through the
1: lens of scripture. Because our culture says, friends, that the best way that we can love someone is to love them in any way that they ask. So long as they're being true to who they are, who they conceive of themselves to be,
0: then the only way to love them is to affirm them. And if you don't, you're a bigot. Here's, what a careful, here's why a careful reading of scripture is, is helpful. Because if the chief
1: responsibility of man is to make much of God, to love him above all, then the best way we can love others is to help them make much of God also. Therefore, it cannot be loving to affirm or celebrate someone's sin. Sometimes love, friends, is, is shaped by the hard edges of the truth. Sometimes love
0: is tough. Sometimes it has to choose between righteousness and a relationship. Why? Because what we desperately want for them most of all is for them to love God and to
1: understand his ways and to look to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and for a transformed life, not for them to have a fleeting feeling of affirmation. Yes, by all means, friends, don't be the one. Don't be the one as a Christian who ditches the relationship. If it severs, let them be the one who severs it. You may be their only bridge to Jesus.
0: But friends, by all means, don't unwittingly be a bridge away from Jesus by affirming their sin. Love neighbor as you love yourself. It's only possible if you love God first. Beloved, these words from
1: Jesus were so earth-shattering that when the New Testament authors like James, Jesus's half-brother, wrote his epistle, he called Jesus' words that we are studying in verse 39, the royal law. <laughs> it's no longer the law of Moses. It's now reframed as the law of the king. In other words, this is what it looks like to live practically Underneath the reign of King Jesus, what does it look like? To love your neighbor as yourself. Here's how it happens. Jesus, by his spirit, transforms us by his grace. And as we find our all in him, he begins to strip from us the pride and selfish ambition that once ruled our hearts. By his mercy, what God does in conversion is to pour out his spirit And by pouring out His Spirit, to pour out His love into our souls through Christ so that we are content and satisfied in Him. And that love that the Spirit pours out, friends, it's not like a little drip, drip, drip from a faucet that's not turned all the way off. It's like a raging river that then overflows its banks into the lives of others. It's an overflowing love and joy that spills out at acts of service and love and kindness.
0: It's like Christ bends our inwardly curved gaze upward first and then outward toward others. Church family, one of the primary evidences of our love for neighbor is our prayer life. Both our individual prayer lives and our participation in corporate prayer in the life of the church. Let me ask
1: you, if God answered every one of your regular
0: prayers. God answered every single one of your regular prayers. Who in your life would become a Christian? Because you're praying for their salvation. Would any of your actual neighbors get saved because God answered your
1: prayers? If God answered every single one of your regular prayers, who in your life would be growing and thriving spiritually.
0: Who would have more stability, more joy, more comfort in Christ? Love it, I would be remiss if I didn't say this morning what I've said so many times from this pulpit.
1: The primary context in which the Bible expects this radical, selfless love to be lived out is within the committed bonds of membership and the local church. And membership in a church is not just being on a roll. It's not the list of those who give. It's not a club that you join for its list of services and benefits. Membership in a church is all about love. It's about locking arms with brothers and sisters in Christ who can help you love God more and whom you can help love God more. I don't have time this morning to prove the case biblically, the case for church membership. See me afterwards. I'll give you a great book that you can read that will prove the case for you. It'll be free. You can read it this afternoon. You just have to trust me a little bit here. The primary way, not the only way, but the primary way God expects you to obey Christ's royal law is by centering your life in the local
0: church not just loving the idea of the church, but actually loving the individuals within it. Let me ask you, is the local church at the very center of your life? Is your Christian life local church shaped? Is helping your fellow brothers and sisters
1: love Jesus better at the top of your mind? It drives you. When's the last time, friends, you've thought creatively and intentionally about how you could bless other members of this body? Man, my heart was just so encouraged when I saw the videos of the carolers the other day singing to our senior saints. That's the type of thing we're talking about here. Loving your neighbor as yourself in the context of the church looks like showing up to help a fellow member move who you don't
0: know very well. It looks like responding to a meal train email for someone you've never even met before. It looks like opening up your home to welcome in new members. It looks like tag
1: teaming with other brothers and sisters to evangelize a friend or a neighbor.
0: It looks like reaching out to those whom you haven't seen in a while, inquiring how they're doing spiritually. Friends, is your life such a life of Love. The lawyer who challenged Jesus was looking for a rule to keep. Jesus, instead, took him on a tour of a heart influenced by God's grace. (laughs) What
1: matters isn't your ability to boast in the achievement of your law-keeping prowess,
0: man. What matters is your love. And yet without the gospel, without the gospel, even this reorientation is bad news. Because here's the thing, not one of us, not one of us has loved God with his or her entire being. Nobody here today has loved neighbor as themselves perfectly. Only one has. Any of us are to have any place in the kingdom of God. It won't
1: be because we earned it through our flawless love, (laughs) but only because we're united by faith to the one whose heart, soul, and mind was always devoted to the Lord as God. The one who never once failed to love his neighbor as himself. Friends, just praise God this morning. Our track record of love is not what merits salvation, but Jesus' track record of love. The command to love God totally and love others selflessly, it just pushes us back into the arms of God's mercy. In just three short days from the time Jesus concludes this conversation with
0: the lawyer, he would demonstrate his preeminent love for God by becoming obedient to the father to the point of death on the cross he publicly proved god's justice and his mercy in one single act of love in that very act of supreme devotion to the father jesus would prove that no one has loved neighbor like he on the cross jesus became the sin bearer not for his own sins but for ours Jesus was broken to heal you. He was cast off to bring you near. Jesus thirsted so that you might drink of a water that will never run dry. He was stripped of honor so that you might be clothed in his righteousness. He died so that you might live. He loved you unto death so that you might love God totally and love others selflessly. Let's pray. Lord, we confess this morning that we are incapable of summoning up this type of love within us.
1: So often our hearts are cold toward you and distant.
0: So often we see others' needs around us and we pass right by unthinkingly, hurriedly, and caringly. Oh Lord, by your spirit, transform us from the inside out
1: so that when someone looks at us and when someone looks at our church, what they see is a, is a person, is a, is a brother, is a sister, is a boy, is a girl, is a congregation who loves you with all their heart, soul, and mind and loves
0: others as we love ourselves. Father, do this work in us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name.